Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, we're focused on drug policy, how and why we should follow the evidence to save lives, and Bill C-216, sponsored by NDPMP Gord Johns. That bill, which I have jointly seconded, would decriminalize drug possession for personal use to treat it as a health matter. It would expunge records for simple possession, and it would require the health minister to develop a national strategy to address the harm caused by problematic substance use by promoting a comprehensive public health approach that includes measures to address the harm associated with criminalization and ensure low barrier access to a safer supply of medically regulated substances. Now, there is broad consensus among experts that we need decriminalization and a safer regulated supply. CAMH, the Canadian Mental Health Association, the chiefs of police, chief medical officers of health across this country, and on and on. I don't pretend, however, that there is consensus on all of the details. And as you'll hear, even among Health Canada's substance use task force experts, the three co-chairs join me later on, there are differing opinions as to how we realize decrim and a regulatory approach. Still, given the scale of the opioid toxicity crisis, one would think that sending a bill like this to committee would be a no-brainer. Let parliamentarians lead a national conversation, inviting experts as witnesses, Help to address the politics, because this is no longer about policy. Politics are an obstacle to saving lives. Yet as it stands, with the vote scheduled for June 1st, the government seems content to vote against it. It is maddening and disappointing. While this government has done a great deal to address this issue, expanding safe consumption sites, restoring harm reduction as a key pillar of our national drug strategy, pilot projects on safer supply, and Bill C-5, which will de facto decriminalize drug possession, as well as work with BC and Vancouver to allow for an exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, it's also true that we haven't done enough. We only delivered $100 million out of a promised $500 million to expand treatment options in this latest budget, as just one example. Voting against C-216 will be another. Now, as I say, the three task force co-chairs join me for a conversation on drug policy more broadly. But to start this episode, I'm joined by the bill's sponsor, Gore Johns, to explain why the bill matters, as well as his staff, Tanya Naylor, who shares a deeply personal story about why it matters so much to her. Thank you, Gord and Tanya, for joining me. Great to be on here with you, Nate. The core question for Canadians and parliamentarians, I think, in relation to C216 is a simple one, which is why should we support this bill? Well, we've lost over 27,000 Canadians since we started keeping track of numbers in 2016. The numbers are skyrocketing. In my home province, you know, it's the number one killer for people between the ages of 19 and 39 uh, of unnatural death. That's including homicide, um, motor vehicle accidents, suicide, all combined. Uh, and we need the federal government to respond to this crisis in, in a way that is going to save lives. And so, I mean, given that, um, you know, this epidemic is rapidly worsening. Uh, we know decades of criminalization and a toxic uh, illicit street supply and a lack of timely access to harm reduction treatment and recovery services has caused this escalating epidemic. So parliamentarians have a duty to uh, step in and do the right thing and respond to this crisis in a way that it should. We saw how we responded to COVID-19. We lost more lives in my province uh, from toxic overdose in the same period of time than we did COVID-19. Yet we haven't seen even close to the adequate response 
or comparable response from the federal government. We had an expert task force from Health Canada, you know, uh, on harm uh, on substance use, make some sound recommendations. So this bill just basically reflects their recommendations. And we know again that decades of criminalization doesn't, you know, hasn't worked. That uh, it's time to to treat substance use and people with substance use disorders as health issues that they truly are and address the stigma and trauma. So the bill basically provides a, a comprehensive approach to do just that by decriminalizing uh, personal drug possession, providing for record expungement and ensuring low barrier access to safe supply and expanding access to harm reduction treatment and recovery services. And it's taking a, you know, the government says that it's a health issue. It's still a criminal issue right now in Canada. So this is taking a health and human rights approach. And it's a reflection of the government's own expert task force. So I can't see any reason why the government would vote against the recommendations made by their own expert task force um, and and get it to committee where they can hear from the experts themselves and they can make amendments there. Why is it so hard to get this to committee? Don't parliamentarians, don't Canadians, don't we deserve a national debate with respect to this national crisis? And don't we deserve to hear from experts about the failure of the status quo and about what solutions should be on the table? And the vote at second reading is just to have that national conversation. Yeah, so I, I mean, you, yourself and Don Davies have tab- tabled legislation in the past. I was lucky; I drew fourth in the in the lottery out of 338 MPs. This Parliament was reset after the 2021 election, and I wasn't going to waste that slot. So, you know, we moved this bill forward. First bill by the NDP. Uh, it's a it's a priority for us, as we're seeing so many people die, and w- we need parliamentarians to move this conversation forward. To ensure that they're listening to the experts. Um, again, the task force was, you know, unanimous in recommending that the first first step that Health Canada end criminal penalties related to simple possession, and uh, most also recommend that Health Canada end all course of measures related to simple possession and consumption. And and they found that uh, that uh, criminalization of simple possession causes harms to Canadians and needs to end. So we need to listen to the experts and, and, you know, the expert task force was comprised of, you know, the uh, Canadian Federation of Police Chiefs, um, top medical health professionals. And you find any medical health professional, uh, chief medical health officer across this country, they're unanimous in supporting these recommendations, including uh, the Liberal uh, MP Brendan Hanley, who was the chief medical health officer for the Yukon, who has been very supportive of this bill and has been a champion for these recommendations for many years in his own personal uh, career. So, uh, I mean, this was, you you know, supported by people who use drugs, people on the front line, experts on substance use. I mean, they're unanimous in these recommendations. Yet government is let this report sit for a year collecting dust and hasn't responded to it. And I know, like talking to Minister Bennett, that she's really focused on safe supply. So are we, but we can't just ignore the recommendations and take, you know, a silver bullet approach to this issue. It's multifaceted. Uh, it requires decriminalization. It requires a, a, a onslaught of harm reduction responses, um, including treatment, including recovery, education, and prevention. It's something that the government needs to move quickly on. You've run through a lot of experts and and yet you haven't even exhausted all experts. There's CAMH, the Canadian Medical Association, Canadian Public Health Association, Canadian Mental Health Association, and on and on it goes. Chief medical health officers in your province of BC and my city of Toronto and, and on and on. And yeah. any party that says they're going to be focused on evidence-based decision-making needs to 
follow the evidence on an issue as important as this. And you mentioned the scale of death in your province that is outpacing COVID, but it's even worse because when you look at years lost in terms of the age of people dying, the opioid crisis is even more tragic in some ways. And Tanya, you have experienced that loss in a really personal way. You are working for Gord, but you previously had a higher paying job, I understand. You were working for the city of Ottawa and you dropped all that to work for Gore to support this bill. Why? So I lost my brother in November 2020. I was on parental leave at the time. He passed away a week before he would have turned 35. And uh, we actually, my family had to bury him on his uh, 35th birthday. You can imagine that that's a really uh, difficult experience. He struggled with mental illness for about a decade before he passed away. And during that time, I tried to be there for him on a a day-to-day basis. How can I support him? How can I encourage him to make safer choices or guide him towards, you know, being ready for for treatment? And uh, there were different points in time where he he was, but um, wasn't able to access those, those services. And ultimately, he passed away. And I was left at this point where, okay, what now? And I was able to see things in a, a, a different perspective, sort of stepping back and seeing more of how the, the policies impacted um, his outcome. When, when he passed away, um, he lived three minutes from a hospital. He wasn't using a loan, and yet 911 wasn't called. We know that there was legislation uh, that passed a few years ago, the um, Good Samaritan Drug Overdose Act, and yet 911 still wasn't called. And um, there was a paper that came out um, after he passed away in Ontario that says that um, fear of um, police attendance still continues to be a barrier in people calling 911 in those emergency situations. You know, I can't say for sure why 911 wasn't called or whether he would have been here, but it's something that I, I wonder. Um, and, you know, whether that plays out in in other deaths that are happening on a daily basis. We know that we're losing about 20 people every single day and that the pandemic accelerated how many people we're losing to this crisis on a daily basis. You know, I went back from Matley back to the city. I I knew that Gord was working on this bill. And um, then there was also the supply and confidence agreement and sort of an indication that maybe the government is willing to to work together with other parties uh, to do the right thing for Canadians. So the opportunity came to to work for Gord, and I just felt really um, compelled to do that. I thought that I, you know, I have personal knowledge of this issue and skills that I can bring to try to help move this forward. And I, I felt like I couldn't say no, but yeah, it was something that came at a cost of my family in terms of taking on a, you know, a political job is a, not as not as secure, doesn't pay as well. And but it, it's something that I, I felt like I, I needed to do. And I, I hope that parliamentarians, when they have the opportunity to vote on this in a, a couple of weeks, don't, you know, let me down on this um, and let Canadians across the country down on this, because as I mentioned, there's there's 20 people every day who are who are dying and, and loved ones who are getting those those calls that I got in November 2020. But there's also thousands of people that are living in fear every day of getting that call. And that's how I felt for years. And it really has an impact on on our community that's, um, you know, people aren't always talking about uh, because of the stigma. That is a really important final point around stigma, because too many people, I think, who haven't thought through this issue or study this issue or certainly felt this issue in a really serious and tragic way in the way that you unfortunately have 
They think, well, the criminal law will dissuade people from using these substances. The criminal law has an, is an important tool to stop people from hurting themselves. But quite the opposite. The criminal law is contributing to, to killing people. There's lots of evidence about, you know, root causes of, of substance use uh, disorders and such. And a lot of it does go back to trauma. And so why are we punishing people that are you know, already dealing with trauma? And we're not providing them the supports to deal with that. Exactly. If your brother had been suffering from uh, substance use issue related to alcohol or had been suffering from a gambling related addiction, the supports that he would have received, the, the interventions from society in terms of those supports would have been markedly different. And we treat it as a, a health issue and, and we don't punish people with the criminal law and we don't push people away from the help they need with the criminal law. I hope that the government supports this bill, but I will say that I think we have an uphill battle. So I am really appreciative, Gord, of your leadership. And, and Tanya, I'm really appreciative of everything you're doing to honor your brother. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for your work, Nate, too. We, we really value it. And um, we're hoping that the government will do the right thing. Next, we'll hear from the three co-chairs of Health Canada's Substance Use Task Force. You heard Gord reference them in his own remarks, and it is worth noting that they aren't monolithic in their views on this. The police chiefs prefer a slower approach, for example, but they are all committed to some version of decrim and safer supply. So here are the co-chairs and what brought them to Health Canada's task force. First, Police Chief Mike Sir, who became the Chief Constable for the Abbotsford Police Department in September 2018. I'm a 32-year police officer, and I started my career uh, walking the beat in the downtown east side. And, uh, and for me, that was really uh, just a significant time in my, in my career when, you know, I was working with so many marginalized people in our community who were using drugs and trying to, I remember finding them support, giving a lot of them tickets, you know, to go to court for simple possession and realizing I wasn't making a difference. And in many cases, uh, I was doing more harm and, uh, you know, very distinctly remember an incident of a, of a young lady using drugs and when I took her drugs away, she said, I'm going to have to go back uh, and re-prostitute myself or go in the sex trade to buy more drugs. And I remember that breaking my heart and literally something that stuck with me. The rest of my career, I, uh, I went on to do a lot of drug work, more of the organized crime level, and eventually came over to Abbotsford and continued that work. I've been with the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police Drug Advisory Committee as a co-chair for uh, well, five years now, but on the committee for almost 10 and it was just an opportunity I had to really advocate that maybe there's a better way we can modernize, you know, how we approach, you know, our drug enforcement. And uh, I was part of uh, the committee that stood up to, uh, to study decriminalization and a different model for that. Next, Carol Hopkins is the executive director of the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, and she spent decades in the field of First Nations addictions and mental health. Well, I'm the CEO of the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. We were incorporated as a National Native Addictions Partnership Foundation. And so from a narrow focus on addictions to a broader perspective or vision on mental wellness to promote the strengths of First Nations people, recognizing our culture and language, our connection to land as that strength to build from that all too often society sees First Nations people as a deficit or a problem. We wanted to balance that story to say we're not just about deficits or problems, that we do have skills and strengths to build upon. The issue is 
mental wellness inequity, not having capacity to be able to apply the answers that we know can work from our culture. And I think oftentimes we hear a lot about the urban environment, but we don't hear enough about rural and remote communities who are suffering just as much. My background is in social work. I have a strong foundation in in sacred Indigenous knowledge. I belong to a sacred society and have been learning and growing and leading in that society for, oh, more than 25 years. (laughs) Oftentimes, people assume that harm reduction or approaches to addictions is contrary to culture and what we believe uh, from our worldview and our values. And so Thunderbird and my work fills that gap to say, no, they're, they're not opposite to each other. There's nothing in our teachings or in our values and our worldview that says we can afford to just let people die unnecessarily, that we can discard people or that we should criminalize them for their intergenerational trauma caused through colonization and racism. I've had too many people, one person is too many, but I've had several people die from drugs and opioids. My own family as well as my friends and my relatives. Lastly, Kwam McKenzie is the CEO of the Wellesley Institute, Director of Health Equity at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, a full professor in psychiatry at the University of Toronto, and a consultant working with the WHO. So I'm a psychiatrist, and I started as a clinical psychiatrist clinician. And, you know, you, you learn how to you know, whether it's through therapy or whether it's through medication or whatever you're doing to get people better. And I'd get and I'd do my best, get people better and but people would come back. And it was pretty predictable who would come back and why they'd come back. They'd come back because of the social factors uh, in their lives. And so I got interested in research. And so I started researching uh, social determinants of health and their impact on who gets illness, and who gets better. And then um, I was challenged by community to stop writing about it and thinking about it and actually do something about it. And so I got involved in working in policy and mental health policy. And mental health policy and substance use policy are the same things. The harms are partly because of the substances, but actually the majority of people who use substances use it in an episodic way and there aren't harms. But for those people who have harms, it's clear that the social determinants of health are very, very important. Policy can really make a huge difference to the risk and also the uh, opportunity for people to get better from substances. The trajectory we're on, looking at the opioid crisis, looking at the alcohol crisis, and also looking at the stimulants crisis. It felt like we had to have a discussion about whether we needed to change direction. And and I'm really proud of the fact that so many people gave their time and their expertise to help us think through what I think are tricky issues that really need to be dealt with if we want to do something about the deaths and the other harms that we're seeing just grow in Canada at the moment. Well, let's pick up there in terms of the 
trickiness and how we navigate in many ways the politics of this and public perception of these challenges. Because where I sit in the House of Commons, it has been quite frustrating to see how slow politicians have been to be seized with the evidence to recognize the opioid toxicity crisis and just the sheer number of Canadians who are dying, the fact that our policies are contributing to those deaths in in a negative way. And I read your reports for May and June and your call for bold actions that include decriminalization, the development of a single public health framework, which regulates all substances and the expansion of safer supply. And I want to get into the details of that, but just reading those words from a task force appointed by the government of Canada, from a police officer, from a psychiatrist, from an expert in addictions and mental health, it does feel like we're finally having a conversation that we needed to have a long time ago in a much more serious and thoughtful way, and that we are likelier to see policy outcomes that do follow the evidence. Let's start with decriminalization, where you've got provinces, you've got cities, you've got health experts certainly all calling for this, you've got police chiefs calling for this, but it means different things to different people. So starting with you, Mike, is it the Portugal model that you have in mind, or is it a hands-off to say, we're actually going to just not be involved in simple possession cases at all. And if it's someone's committed theft, then maybe a drug treatment court's the right answer. But if it's just simple possession, we're going to treat it entirely as a health issue. So, you know, Nate, it's interesting. So I'm actually on the provincial task force or working group that's looking at uh, the Section 56 application. And, you know, I do support decriminalization. I do support not criminalizing people who have a small amount of drugs, but I also am very mindful of the fact that I, I do believe that we can have unintended consequences if we don't do this right. And really advocating that we have one chance to do this right the first time. And so, you know, as much as I've been a real advocate to, to really push forward this conversation amongst police chiefs and leaders, I do believe that, you know, taking a very, you know, evidence-based low and slow approach that, that really is connecting us with health supports and services. And one of the concerns I have with some of the models I'm seeing, Vancouver, you know, um, British Columbia, I know Toronto is now looking at this, is that there isn't that pathway to health. Um, I don't believe in a model that, that truly just supports opening up, you know, a super large thresholds that, you know, for example, I think it's very well documented, the BC model talks about uh, 4.5 grams. Well, for opioids or fentanyl, that's 45 doses. Um, that is a significant amount of drugs. So we are, we're taking a more conservative approach as chiefs, you know, that, you know, one gram, um, a model that doesn't promote, you know, more use, but promotes connecting with health services. And, and we're not looking at course treatment or that. We're just looking at connections. You know, when we envision this from the Canadian Association of Chiefs, we envision a model closer to Portugal where there would be, you know, compassion commissions or dissuasion commissions that if a person wasn't ready, at least they had that that connection with somebody who can help them when they were ready. So that is a mall we're looking at. I have a mall like that here or sorry, in Abbotsford where I can connect people to peers. We want this, but we want it in a way that is going to help save lives. And Kwam and Carol, there's a bill before Parliament. I drafted a part of it, at least as a private member's bill focused on drug policy reform. And it's more akin to the Portugal model, which it would say to police officers and training is obviously required to make sure we implement it in full. But my read of that legislation and my intent was to effectively de facto decriminalize that I couldn't get the government entirely on board with this idea of decriminalization, although I think your your task force report helps. So this was an idea to say we're going to fetter the discretion of police and prosecutors. They can't move forward except in accordance with these health principles. And otherwise, we're going to see warnings and voluntary referrals. It's not perfect, but it would, I think, 
effectively be de facto decrim. But then I speak to folks from the Canadian HIV AIDS legal network and people who are advocates for a human rights center approach for people who use drugs. And they would say, get the criminal law entirely out of here. We, we, we don't want for simple possession. We want we don't even want the Portugal model. That's too coercive. Do you have a view as to the, the specifics of decriminalization? Yeah, I mean, there isn't one profession that can solve this wide public health crisis on drugs. It has to be an interdisciplinary approach. And so making the criminal justice system, police and the courts responsible for the health of people who use drugs just doesn't sit well with people who use drugs. Now, add on to that the layer of experience that First Nations, Inuit, or Métis people have had with police and with drugs. So now you've added another barrier because the relationship has not been good. Our jails are disproportionately represented by First Nations people compared to First Nations people's population within Canada. And even in jails, we've heard where people do not get good access you know, to treatment or to opioid agonist treatment therapy when they do present with a drug-related crime. And so that pathway is fraught with the history and the reality of the current environment where the relationship isn't good. I go back to First Nations communities and the inequity. They're not resourced the same. So First Nations communities, if we leave it to police, and, and police are playing a role, It's not to say that police don't have a good relationship, that there aren't police who understand, as as Mike has talked about, in terms of the conditions that facilitate crimes in relation to drugs, crimes of survival. And I learned that term from Mike, crimes of survival. And it really, I felt so empowered by that term because it expresses an understanding of the reality for people who use drugs. If we place the burden on police, alone for this issue. We don't move far enough. It's not bold enough. It's not courageous enough. And Kwam, well, you'd raised not only the challenges around illicit substances, but you also raised mental health challenges related to alcohol. And and we don't say we're going to be coercive through the criminal law for those who are suffering from alcohol addictions. Do you see when you when you look at decriminalization as the conversation on the task force, did you land along the lines of a Portugal model or did you land along the lines of, for simple possession at least, let's get criminal justice out of the way? Well, I think that this is one of the conversations which can be polarised, but it doesn't need to be. I think everybody would agree that the direction must be to decrease harms and increase access to supports. That's what everybody wants. And the question is, how do you do that? And the conversation that a lot of people have had and we had in the task force was whether current criminalization and having the police so front and centre is actually decreasing harms and increasing access. And as we've seen the explosion, the increased numbers of people dying from opioids and the issue with other substances people came to the conclusion that perhaps we needed a new direction, that perhaps, uh, totally agreeing with Mike, we need, to, we need increased access to supports and treatments, and we need pathways to get people there. But the question is whether the 
quickest and most efficient way of doing that is for somebody to be identified by the police and then go to a court and then be directed to do something. And so our worry was that the current regime could be part of the problem and isn't part of the solution. It could be changed, maybe, to be part of the solution, but it isn't at the moment. And the vast majority of people who are having overdoses at the moment, even especially of opioids, 75%, there is no way the current regime with police involved uh, is helping. And it is why some people would argue that all of these things are happening in secret, that actually the fact that uh, it's criminalised decreases access rather than increases access because it drives things underground. So that was a conversation we had. But the important thing is that there is a variety of beliefs on this. And it may be that people want different things in different cities and provinces. But the important thing is once we've got the direction to have that conversation and to start moving towards something that will actually make a difference. Because at the moment, we're seeing... Uh, huge numbers of people dying and we don't have a whole bunch of solutions and we need some solutions fast. You mentioned, Kwong, this the scale of deaths and this is the thing that jumps out at me all the time. I mean, we've seen as of today, 32,000 Canadians die of COVID and 25,000 Canadians die of the opioid crisis, different timelines, but the scale is is incredible for both. And and on the one hand, we've listened to public health experts, we've spent hundreds of billions of dollars. And on the other hand, our policies are still getting in the way and contributing to deaths. And you, as a group, collectively, I think, have have exhibited incredible leadership, not only using the language of decriminalization, which can scare some folks, but more than that, when I read the development of a single public health framework, which regulates all substances, and the expansion of safer supply, I thought this is exactly where we need to get because the prime minister is right when he says decriminalization isn't a silver bullet. He's wrong that that means we shouldn't do it, but it isn't a silver bullet. Regulation is what is going to save lives because it's a it's a poisoned, unregulated drug supply that's killing people. And when we have that conversation about what regulation should look like, because that's even more fraught in some ways than decriminalization, when you use the language on the task force of a single public health framework, which regulates all substances, what did you individually have in mind? So I think this was it was very interesting to us that those deaths, those opioid deaths, are the things that dominate the headlines, whereas the harms from alcohol are things that don't dominate the headlines. And then we've had harms from smoking tobacco and vaping, which are different again, but they've all got different types of regulation with different types of focus. So we wanted to squarely think about uh, public health and health and harms of substances. So we wanted it to be very clear what we were talking about and what we're talking about with all of these substances. And then we thought, well, they actually, we should have a public health framework, think about it, these as uh, health and public health issues Uh, but then have different types of uh, regulation for the different substances underneath. But the fact that they're all together allows you to crosswalk learnings from one to the other, but it also stops the divide and rule. 
let's play opioids off against alcohol, let's play alcohol off against tobacco. We actually have to think of the impacts of all of these potentially addictive substances alongside each other and make sure that we have coordinated approaches uh, rather than siloed approaches. So we were thinking that this would end up being uh, more streamlined, it would be fairer, and it would be more than the sum of its parts. And Carol, similarly, you, with the experience you have in mental health and addictions, colleagues of mine who are worried about a policy of regulation and and safer supply will say, well, short term, there may be some harm reduction benefits, but long term, people are going to use these substances more if they're more widely available. And regulation can mean lots of different things, too. And when you push for a regulated framework and safer supply, what do you have in mind? Well, we've seen a number of exemptions since the beginning of the pandemic, all designed to reduce the harms to people who are using drugs. So the expansion of uh, safe injection sites, safe supply, as you mentioned, and the exemptions are temporary. And when the pandemic is over, that doesn't tell us how these how people who are using drugs currently are going to survive now that they've maybe are involved in a program that is saving their life and then it suddenly ends because the pandemic is declared it has come to an end. So the exemptions, we have to consider the good evidence and there are evaluations happening now around safe supply in Canada. And one of the central questions in the evaluations is looking at the public perception around diversion. So the perception is that safe supply of drugs gets diverted. And it's a continuation of the narrative that people who use drugs are criminals. And so that's a, a, a key factor in the evaluation of the safe supply programs. Um, and I've heard my colleagues say, you know, supplying drugs to folks who live a certain lifestyle is not the answer. But I remember when I think about that, it reminds me of the days uh, when I was in high school. The thought was we can't teach sex education until grade 12, because if we teach people about sex education, then everybody's going to go out and start having sex. Well, think, thank goodness we learned that that was a ridiculous thought, had no evidence. So now sex education happens in grade eight. What we believe in or what we perceive to be reality doesn't make it true, is not good evidence. And so we have to wait for the evaluation and use that evidence to inform the policy. And the first time I heard pharmaceutical grade heroin should be prescribed, I thought, oh my gosh, what are we talking about? That doesn't make sense to me. And I had to learn, what does that mean? How does it work? How does it help people? And who does it help? And why does it help? Now, we've also heard from the medical profession that we're not going to prescribe our way out of this situation in this crisis. Like you said, there's no silver bullet. There has to be many coordinated efforts. And we have to think also that it's not just opioids, although that's what we hear about and we haven't talked as much about alcohol, but there are populations that prefer methamphetamine and prefer sedatives. Those combinations of drugs 
are toxic and are being contaminated and poisoned and people are dying. And so the regulation is about getting out of that temporary environment of exemption. And Mike, this is a question I want to put to you. When Bill Blair, this is pre-pandemic, but Bill Blair and I would be out in the community. We share a boundary together and we share communities. And we were out on the street on the Danforth and cops, of course, come up to him and say, hey, chief. And I, my favorite joke to make with Bill when I'm in his presence around other cops is I, I'll pat him on the back and I'll turn to the cops and say, did you ever imagine he'd be the one to legalize cannabis? And he, he'll turn to me without fail and say, strictly regulate, Nate, strictly regulate. And that, that really is the answer here. I mean, when you when you are talking about a completely unregulated drug supply, which is the status quo of prohibition, and then you as a member of the task force and the task force called for a framework which regulates all substances and the expansion of safer supply, presumably we're talking about strict regulation. Regulation need not be the same for all substances. Substances are regulated according to their respective harms, one would think, but we can move away from this conversation that needs to be widely available to a conversation around strict regulation that follows the evidence. Yeah, Nate, well, I think, you know, talk to Bill a lot about uh, the cannabis and, and it's been fascinating to watch that as it's unrolled. I know there's many who thought the sky would fall and quite frankly, you know, it hasn't. It's, we haven't seen consumption rates go up. You know, I'll be honest. I mean, when it comes to, you know, the harder drugs, um, you know, police will be concerned about, you know, a regulated type model. But, uh, you know, but we're all very alive and very open to a safer supply. We really think that is uh, a critical part of this moving forward. Um, I'll be blunt. I mean, what's killing people that people weren't dying even close to the numbers, you know, five years ago and, and, uh, you know, longer because we didn't have this incredibly toxic supply of fentanyl and its analogs. The amount of people dying today is just unbelievable. And it's because of the drugs we're seeing on our streets today. And, you know, I always say a drug dealer will always try to get a person to use more drugs. That's their job is to make more money, make more money. And so a safer supply, a medical assistant model, a model where a nurse practitioner, a doctor, a pharmacist can help provide a, a safer supply of a drug, which whether it be an opioid, a stimulant, et cetera, I think is, is the approach we need to look at. Um, and, and a model that isn't too cumbersome where, you know, somebody is, is going to have real challenges accessing a, a safer supply. And that is going to be our first step. I think whatever model we take, um, we're first going to get judged on, are we saving lives? If we do a model on decrim that, that doesn't save lives today and tomorrow and, and in the coming year, to me, I think that's a failure. Uh, it breaks my heart. I was with a mother just uh, last week who lost uh, two months previous, lost her son to an overdose. And he tried to get help and was let go of the hospital uh, without getting that support. And the next day passed away. You know, my advice, you know, is to, you know, to parents. I mean, if you're, if your youth is using drugs, we, you got to get, you're not getting, it's not just as easy as say, get them off the drugs. Let's be realistic. We need to get them support until they're ready. A safer supply is something I think we need immediately. And we need to look at that. You know, how, how we describe it, whether it's regulated, we don't want to see a model like cannabis where you have, you know, stores, you know, but I certainly, I think we're all, you know, where a person could go to a supervised consumption site and there is a health uh, you know, professional there who can help. I mean, it's, it's asinine. We tell someone, go buy a highly, highly toxic drug, bring it to a facility where you're going to use it potentially overdose, we're going to, we're going to help you with your overdose, throw you back on the street to yet again, go buy another highly, highly toxic substance. There's got to be a more compassionate, better way to do this. And for me, organized crime and, and the criminals who sell drugs, they don't care. They will continue to put out this highly toxic, uh, you know, Quam said it, this, this, these toxic drugs. So I think that's a model we absolutely have to, to look at very quickly. 
And I see safer supply as part of the regulatory conversation because it's a very strictly regulated framework, but it's a regulated framework nonetheless. And you move away from that toxic poison drug supply. And obviously different substances would be regulated differently. Cocaine has different potential harms to heroin, has different potential harms to cannabis, has different potential harms to caffeine. I mean, we regulate things differently according to their respective harms if we follow the evidence. You know, I think we're going to, Health Canada is already having a, a more constructive conversation around psychedelics and the role that they can play in clinical settings like, like qualms. And, and so there is a regulatory framework for that particular substance. And so I think that's where, again, the more we get into the details and, and say, how do we thoughtfully approach different substances to reduce harms? That's a place we want to be. And even and in six years, we've come a long way. But I'll, I'll tell you, in, in my world, there's still that politicized, charged environment of when I introduced a bill that was very soft, just around decriminalization, it was a press release to say Nate wants kids to be using drugs. And thankfully, they didn't release the same press release when the police chief said the very same thing. But it, the conversations moved quickly, but not quickly enough. And so... Some advice for me, maybe you have table two reports in May and in June, and you've called for the very same things that I would like to see. Although uh, the one thing we haven't talked about, we should talk about too, is this idea of new and significant investments, because I think we do need to do everything all at once. And that's safer supply, which will cost money. That's treatment options and expanding treatment options that will cost money. It's getting police out of the business as much as reasonably possible to provide those health supports. If you were in my shoes, this is the question I always come back to to people who are smarter than me with more experience. But if you're in my shoes, how do you think I can constructively move this conversation further? Is it to ask for money for treatment and ask for money for safer supply potentially? It's maybe pushing the conversation around safer supply and regulation to, I don't know if you revisit your role as task force members to look into these things in more detail in, in a granular way to provide recommendations about what regulation should maybe look like in terms of a safer supply and an expansion of safer supply. But what do you think comes next from a political advocacy perspective and, and from where we need to follow the evidence? That was the same question that the task force had is what's the next step? And there needs to be support for the implementation, the action on those two reports. Maybe a task force, but there was also interest in having conversations with certain populations to have a deeper dive. So, for example, people who use drugs. They have a voice and they have more to offer. You've heard the conversation through uh, municipalities who have looked at um, safe supply, but on a national scale, what does that look like? That's just one example. First Nations, Inuit, Métis peoples, you know, what is their perspective and how do they fit between federal and provincial uh, relationships? And Mike, what what do you think comes next in terms of, I know the police chiefs have been very vocal about the need for expanded treatment options. The challenge, I think conservatives sometimes then say, well, we can't do any of those other things until we get full treatment. And I think that's a bit of a fiction. We need to do everything all at once as fast as we can. What do you think should come next in this conversation? Well, Nate, let's be honest. We have de facto decriminalized drugs in Canada. We just haven't made it official. But, but you know, through policy of the Public Prosecution Service of Canada, no one across Canada is charging anybody or shouldn't be for a simple possession unless there's, you know, a nexus or connection to, um, you know, to public safety or youth. For the most part, we've done there. So now we really need to make the bold statement of, okay, 
Now let's decriminalize, let's destigmatize, let's clearly put this in the health pathway. So for me, is number one is let's we, we need to build up our infrastructure. We need to think how this truly is going to be taken over by health. Health needs to be prepared to take this over. But we do need to come forward and say that, uh, you know, we, we've dipped our toes in the water with decrim. Um, I think it's time to move forward and, and start to build the health system uh, to support that. And Quam, related to that, the point was made, people that seeking acute care, we don't, we don't have the services available for people even today who want the help at that moment in time when, when they, and we know to be effective, we need to get them the help when there is that moment of readiness. In doing everything at once, the expanding treatment options looks like a, a monetary commitment that is, should be significant in this budget. 500 million is committed in our platform. That may well not be enough. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. And Beyond that, when we look at the more granular details required of regulation and ensuring we do have a more expansive, safer supply, do you see that as a conversation that continues through your task force or Carol was mentioning maybe more focused task forces that would then inform political advocacy? This is tricky. (laughs) It's tricky on a number of levels. So let's go backwards. Let's start off with This is a national conversation and we need to work out how we have the national conversation. Task forces at the federal level are very useful for policy, but part of the reason this is a tricky issue is actually the facts are fairly clear, right? The problem is at the moment stigma and culture are eating the facts for breakfast, right? So the facts are being kicked to the sidelines uh, because people are seeing them through certain lens. So there's a certain amount of culture change which is needed in general. The good thing is that when you ask Canadians, the culture is significantly changing and people are much more on board about decriminalisation than others. But there will be pockets of, you know, people who don't want this at all. So I think that there's, it's a tricky thing. I do think that there needs to be those conversations at a at local level. So I do think there needs to be federal leadership and cross-party federal leadership. Um, but I do think, uh, though it's difficult in government, we need to really talk about true cost because uh, the war on drugs is incredibly expensive. And putting people in prison is really expensive. And there is an opportunity to be more effective with that money. Uh, And as you say, going upstream, thinking not just about about, uh, treating people early, but also about the social determinants of health and the reasons why people are desperate, thinking about how you deal with trauma, and what you're going to do about trauma, and maybe thinking about how you produce trauma-informed cities and trauma-informed services, and thinking about all of those things that are upstream, that decrease the costs downstream are going to be important. But then when you get downstream, thinking about whether spending the money on court or spending the money on supports is where you want to go. Well, thanks to all three of you for helping, I think, everyone who certainly read your report to think differently. And as members who are calling for greater national leadership, I would just say your advocacy and your work makes it a lot easier to see that national leadership and to lean on expertise like yours.
uncommon, but perhaps fitting. We've also gone back in the archives for a few clips from past guests, including Louise Arbour, a former Supreme Court of Canada justice who lays waste to any defense of prohibition and the status quo. There is actually more harm done by the enforcement of prohibition than by the sector of abusive drug consumption. The recreational use of drugs is overwhelmingly not particularly harmful, certainly a lot less harmful than, say, the consumption of alcohol or tobacco, which is extremely harmful. So our argument was yet to move from prohibition to public health. We knew there was a terrible harm caused by prohibition itself, and the lack of public health initiatives was also very severe. The connection, for instance, between the spread of HIV uh, hepatitis C amongst intravenous drug users was very well documented. The more prohibitive the regime was in a country, the highest the rate of infection for diseases that are communicable that way. And you remember what it took in Canada to get safe injection sites, to get this kind of harm reduction initiative. It took, again, the Supreme Court of Canada. The irony of it is then in the harm reduction initiatives, particularly in the Vancouver East Side and so on, and now on the claim for decriminalization of personal possession of all drugs, it's very ironic to see often at the forefront of this argument, chiefs of police who understand the futility of what they're asked to do. And at the same time, the public health officials who realize also the impediment that it creates for them. But as you said, the bigger picture, what it does to the kind of geopolitical environment of Latin America, Mexico is a very good example. The contamination of democratic institutions through corruption, for instance, because of the enormous profits that are generated in these criminal enterprises. So it deprives the government of sources of income through taxing, and it generates terrible corruption opportunities that then erode the efforts that we spend collectively, Western countries, in trying to boost democratic institutions in these countries. Now, you already heard Carol Hopkins speak to the impact of criminalization on Indigenous people. Well, here's another clip from the archives. Professor Akwazi Awusu Bempa, he's at U of T, he's an expert in race and criminal justice, and he rightly describes the history of drug prohibition and its deep roots in racism. We imported large numbers of Chinese laborers to complete the railroad, right? Once that railroad was complete, those Chinese laborers were seen as competition to white folks. There was, of course, unrest. There were riots in Vancouver. And, and as a direct response to the riots, to the unrest, and to the concern that white people had about Chinese people potentially taking their jobs, opium, which had been associated with that population and was continually associated with that population, was criminalized. And those groups were targeted for that, right? Similarly, Emily Murphy. Uh, celebrated oh, yeah. Canadian, Famous um, five. right? Exactly, uh, a key figure in the the uh, women's rights movement and uh, and the first you know female magistrate in the in British North America, perhaps at least in Canada. Uh, you know, wrote uh, in the Black Candle and other places under her pen name uh, Emily Canuck uh, about you know the Negro menace and the as you say the yellow peril and the dangers to white Canadians that would be inflicted upon the population by people of color. And a key piece of that association for her and, and a key way in which whites would be denigrated was through the use of drugs that they would be introduced to by uh, non-white people. So that is, you know, that is firmly rooted in Canadian history as it is in, in the American history. And again, 
you know, so few people are aware of that story. In the piece of writing I was just doing, you know, I was, I started off with that history. In the United States, you can trace that history to the present day much more succinctly. In Canada, there was, of course, a gap because I didn't have the data um, mm. to back up the, the, you know, the, the smooth arc. So, you know, I've got studies showing that, you know, the Asian people are still the primary target of drug law enforcement in Canada up until the 1950s. And then there's a gap between the uh, 1950s and the 1980s. And it wasn't until Mulroney declared his war on drugs. And thankfully, the Commission on Systemic Racism in the, in the Ontario criminal justice system did its review. And it started to examine admissions to custody in Ontario for different crimes, including uh, drug importation and trafficking. And these numbers are stark, right? Between the late 1980s and early 1990s, the number of black admissions to custody increased in some of the Toronto area institutions by upwards of 3,000%. Holy right? shit. Exactly. And so the, the, the end, the number would have been relatively small to begin with. So that the 3,000% in, in a raw number is not, but you can just see the, the huge kind of growth. And, and the commission in its report remarked that as in the United States, the war on drugs in Canada has led to the disproportionate incarceration of black Canadians and had this negative effect on black people as well. And then, so we've got that in the early 1990s. And then again, we've got this gap. And then the early 2000s, Rankin and the Star produce a bit of work. And then again, we've got a bit of a gap until Rankin does something else. And then Evan Solomon gets a little bit of data, Rachel Brown. But other than that, we have very little to tell this story with, right? But we know it's a feature of our history. We need a society that does not view certain groups as inferior, as dangerous, as troublesome, right? They, they, they need to be viewed as equal integral parts of a diverse society such as Canada. We pride ourselves on being multicultural, being inclusive, and being diverse. Lastly, here's Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver, explaining the process of applying for an exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act in order to decriminalize possession in his own city. He tells me at the time, almost a year ago now, that he expects an approval in a matter of weeks. And of course, it is past time we approved BC's application, which came subsequent to Vancouver's application, and we need to move quickly to follow suit with Toronto and other interested cities and provinces. But it goes to show that we are not moving at the speed we should be moving at to address the scale of the crisis. So I was in uh, Ottawa pre-COVID, just when the new cabinet was sworn in, uh, when Patty Haydu became uh, the Minister of, of Health, and I ran into her in the hallway and I said, because I was, we were both doing an interview or something, and I said to her, would you be open to talking about decriminalizing drugs? And she said yes, which was great because I think that's probably the first health minister in the history of the country that would would say yes after initial uh, conversation. So I've had absolute support from the minister right from the beginning. And then it's how do we do that? So we, we kind of talked informally, and then there was a path that was found, which is to provide a, a health exemption to um, the Controlled Substances Act. And then I asked council if they were interested in applying for this. I had more another unanimous vote, yes. And so we got a team together and put forward our application, which has been now submitted and uh, reviewed and I think weeks away from uh, being approved. Thanks, as always, for joining. I hope you appreciated a slightly different episode. And to close, we'll leave differently as well. I'm going to leave you with a short speech I gave in the House of Commons earlier this year during a take-note debate on the opioid crisis, a debate brought about by my colleague Brendan Hanley, the former chief medical health officer for the Yukon, now a liberal member of parliament for the Yukon, and also a strong supporter of Bill C-216. The sheer scale of this crisis is hard to fathom. We've lost... 25,000 Canadians since the beginning of 2016. 
Every one of those is a personal story, of course, impacting many more in family, friends, and coworkers, and loved ones, and more. But it's not just opioid-related deaths. We should describe this problem as what it is. It is a poisoned drug crisis. A recent report from Public Health Ontario and the Drug Policy Research Network described it, I think, accurately, and, and we should all describe it in this way. This is an opioid toxicity crisis. And we know the laws on the books are ineffective. The police chiefs have told us the laws are ineffective, but it's worse than that. The laws actually contribute to these deaths because they push people away from treatment. We know that on the evidence. They stigmatize people. They push people away from treatment. But worse, prohibition is the absence of regulation. And when you leave it to the black market, what do you get? You get poisoned drugs, and those poisoned drugs are killing people. It is prohibition that is killing people. And we know that it's getting worse in the course of this pandemic. It was bad before the pandemic, but it is getting worse. And what's the answer? Well, I've heard colleagues say we don't know the exact right approach. I've heard the prime minister say decriminalization isn't a silver bullet. And you know what? It's not a silver bullet. We need absolutely to do everything, everything we can to stop the scale of death. And so let's listen to the experts. There's a recent task force, substance use task force, that included a police presence, that included a presence for mental health experts, included a range of different voices. And you know what they called for? Bold action for decriminalization, for a regulatory approach. Let's talk about regulating a safer supply and expanding that safer supply. Because you know what the answer to a poison drug crisis is? Ensuring the drugs aren't poisoned. Ensuring the drugs aren't poisoned. It is as simple as that, saving lives today. And decriminalization, not a silver bullet, but you know what decriminalization does? It ensures that we treat drug use as a health issue, and we encourage people to seek treatment. And so I worry when the Portugal conversation comes up, and, and by the way, Portugal still was probably more coercive than I would like, but if anyone wants to get up and support the Portugal approach, we should do that immediately because it would save lives. But it not only removes the stigma and encourages people to seek treatment, but in Portugal, they also wildly expanded treatment. And that's also what we have to do. But we don't do it in steps, not when so many people are dying. We do it all at once. So if we want to talk about Portugal, I would push back a little bit on my conservative colleagues because I would say Portugal decriminalized and they rapidly expanded treatment at the same time because they were facing a crisis. And you know what we need to do? At the same time, rapidly expand treatment options. There's $500 million promised in the platform that builds off $150 million from a previous parliament. We need to deliver that money in the budget and make sure it's evidence-based treatment. But that should go hand in hand with removing ineffective, not my words, the words of police chiefs, ineffective criminal laws that push people away from that very treatment we want to provide. And we need a safer, a safer supply because it is a poisoned drug crisis that is killing people. And don't listen to me. Listen to Cam H. Listen to the police chiefs. Listen to the experts on the substance use task force. Listen to every single expert who has looked at this issue with any seriousness to say, what we are doing is killing people. Let's do something differently. And yes, let's do it all at once. This level of a crisis demands that we do everything we can all at once to save lives. 